Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This episode is sponsored by Zengo. This is the Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the metaverse, Web3, and more with stories that matter to the crypto world. All on the hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hey there. Happy Friday and welcome to Coindesk TV. You are watching the hash. I am Zach Seward. We have Will Foxley. We have Jensen Assey. And we have very special guest, Sam Kessler, Coindesk reporter. One of the greats. That's him. He just waved. He has our first story today. The regular members of The Hash are tired about talking about Do Kwon, but Sam is not. So we brought him on to unpack the latest Do Kwon development. Sam, take it away, my friend. In, in my defense, I only learned about the tiredness five minutes ago as we were about to go on air. Um, so apologies for that. I'm still excited to talk about it. So as many of us who are watching this know, there was a huge interview with Do Kwon, who is currently, you know, apparently, maybe, maybe not on the run the founder of Terra. Um, it was with Lara Shin, that interview. Um, earlier, I, I think it was recorded last week. It came out on Tuesday. We're going to listen to a clip really quick, kind of showing how Doe feels about whether this was a fraud or whether it was a failure and whether he actually deceived people. Oh, yes, I, I, I am sorry. I, I, I think, and it, it could seem you know, with the way that we've been responding to allegations and news reports and things like that, that that we're being defensive or something like that, but that is absolutely not the case. I believed in the stability of UST, and I do understand that my beliefs and statements about how stable and safe UST would be led a lot of, uh, you know, traders and, you know, holders without the tools to understand the complex economic mechanisms uh, underpinning UST to gain confidence in a system that ultimately failed. Yeah, so really quick before I throw it to you all for comment, the TLDR here, of course, is that Terra was that $60 billion stablecoin project that collapsed basically to zero. This is the second time we've seen Doe talk to the project, Doe, the founder, talk about what happened since it all crashed back in May. And here in that clip, we just heard him talk about how he admits and apparently apologizes for deceiving so many people. So there's kind of two camps of questions here. First, did he embezzle money? Did he use this? Did he set it up as a scam in some way? And then the second, did he just deceive people into buying into this project? And that's what this talks do. And 
apparently we've talked about it before, but I wonder if there's much more to say here and then maybe we can talk about some of the rest of the interview. Zach. Interesting to hear this for sure. So this is, you know, a bit of contrition from Doquan, who's been known to be, you know, boastful, loud, and otherwise boisterous on Twitter.com. So to hear that from him, I think was interesting, right? Hey, he believed in this thing and it failed. There were some statements along the way that exposed traders to risk, but he's just as disappointed in this, in this epic collapse as anyone else. I don't ever really know what to make of these statements anymore. They've been going back and forth in terms of how they're approaching sort of the continued ramifications from this fallout. So I see, I just, I take it with a grain of salt. It's nice to hear the note of contrition in his voice. And I do, I do not doubt that he uh, sincerely is communicating those feelings, but it's really hard to keep track of what we are to make of this situation, which, which has left investors in bad shape and really triggered a lot of bad things across the crypto markets that people's livelihoods were compromised over. So it's, it's, the 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 comeback tour is interesting. It's certainly worth remarking upon. At this point, it's sort of like, I just don't know what to say. There's there's all these open questions. And I think, I don't know what the resolution will ultimately be. I saw Jen's hands first and then, uh, then Will wants to get in as well. So Jen, take it. Yeah, there was an article in the Financial Times recently. And when I saw it, I was like, yes, I have something else to say about Do Kwan than just, uh, we're going to keep talking about Do Kwan. There's a group of 4,400 retail crypto investors <laughs> that have a Discord channel. They're called the UST Restitution Group, and they are committed to finding Do Kwan. So they share clues about his whereabouts in this Discord group. One of the people that's part of the group has plans to go to Dubai within the next 10 days. He says that he doesn't think it's going to be that hard to find Do Kwan. I think that this is probably troubling for Do Kwan. If I was him, I would probably turn myself in to the authorities at this point. It must be really scary to think that there are people out there looking for you. I think for anyone who's maybe a part of this group or who is looking for Do Kwan, it's important to say, don't take justice into your own hands. Don't do something stupid. It's all fun and games when, when you're in a group and, and you know chatting on the internet, but these are people's lives we're dealing with. So it will be interesting to see what comes out of this. A community has formed. How, how crypto-centric that a community has formed around what's happened with UST, Will? I love the the positive take there. That there's a community at least doing something about this. Uh, I want to zero in on one soundbite that we just brought up there in that little clip, and that's that Doquan thought UST would actually be stable. But we have reporting from CoinDesk that Zach even contributed to, showing that Doquan had been a part of a failed algorithmic stablecoin prior to UST, and that one had failed because the concept doesn't work. Right? You can't have an algorithmic stablecoin that has long-term success. There has not been one in history. There's been many attempts at building these things. The one that he was involved with, Doquan was involved with, was called Basis Cash back in 2020. And that one failed. And that was one of many different ideas. It seems to me that Doquan was almost like romantically involved with this idea of a decentralized stablecoin with no actual backing, only using market forces to back the coin. And maybe he was in love with that idea and so he kind of let it go. And then the hubris and just the amount of money that flowed into the token ecosystem itself pushed it to its great heights. And that's sort of what I'm seeing coming out of this whole interview with Laura Shin. But at the same time, like you have a history there and it's failed. So you can't really say that it's okay. Zach, I'm going to throw it up to you. Get your take on that. Got to get Sam in here. I mean, say I was just a bit player in that massive scoop and that was all Sam's doing. Uh, so I'm tossing it straight to him. What do you got? You might be surprised. Thanks, Zach. Uh, but I, I might actually push back a little bit on this narrative that Basis Cash played or should play a big role 
in our understanding of whether Terra was a fraud or not. So Basis Cash, very briefly, like Will mentioned, was another failed algorithmic stablecoin project that was not banked by a, or backed by a treasury or a bank or anything like that. Doe was pseudonymously secretly involved in this project. We, Zach did play a role in this, uncovered that right as Terra was crashing a while back. But a lot of people are kind of making a big deal of Basis Cash as evidence that an algorithmic stablecoin, a decentralized stablecoin, you know, Doe should have known because of his um, involvement with this failure that Terra would have failed as well. And I do think that it's fair to point out that while Terra and Basis Cash did share some elements, there was a lot of difference between the mechanisms that the two used to achieve this dollar parity sort of thing. So I guess my overarching point here is that Basis Cash is an important indication, not that Terra was definitely going to fail, but that Doe knew the risks and deceived people nonetheless. And it's also kind of like an indication to me of this weird rot within the crypto startup community, or at least corners of it, where people are willing to embark on these economic playground experiment type things without disclosing to users that they can crash and burn. Sorry, Zach, I see your, your finger up. No, absolutely. Just want to riff on that a little bit. You know, the dream is real of decentralized stablecoins, right? Decentralized stablecoins offer the promise of escaping the censorship risk that asset-backed stablecoins face, right? If you have USDC, presumably there is a dollar sitting in a bank somewhere in the real world, and presumably authorities, be they US or other, can act against those centralized intermediaries, thus compromising some of the foundational decentralized ideals of what is indeed called decentralized finance, perhaps a bit aspirationally at this point, by the way. So the dream is there, right? That is the holy grail, but it just has yet to work. We've seen all these experiments ultimately fail, and that goes to the question of what basis cash is as an indicator. Sam, back to you. I, I'm going to shut up after this, but one more thing I didn't want to forget to throw in here is that we got really lucky that Laura Shin shouted out um, a, a question that I was able to throw to her based on some reporting from myself and some of my sources where we found, and this goes to some of what we've been talking about, about Doe basis cash. So in the early days of Terra, Doe Kwan and his team forked the chain in order to recover funds for an investor that lost their keys, apparently. Doe confirmed that for the first time. We found this a while ago. You can actually see it in their GitHub. This happened. Why is it a problem? Well, when Ethereum forked their chain to recover funds for people, it was a huge, giant thing. It's called the DAO. Well, it was called the DAO that got whatever. There's like an entire thing. Look up the DAO. It was in 2016. The entire community agreed on what to do. In this case, TFL looks like it unilaterally, with the help of the validators operating the chain, moved funds from one address to another. Doe says the community was smaller at, at, at the time. But the reason why I bring this up is because it shows that even though, like Zach said, there is this giant dream of a decentralized algorithmic currency, which I do think is a noble thing when it comes to, you know, if you actually say you believe in crypto, that is a nice ideal to adhere to. But this example shows that Terra, in going against the immutability of their chain and forking it without clear community disclosure, at least this was not a thing that people knew about until this week, it shows that maybe some of that decentralization, algorithm, all that stuff was indeed marketing hype more than a real dream for Doquan. So anyway, sorry to throw that one in at the end, but 
Let's anybody that was a good session. We just needed to bring some fresh blood to the conversation. This was good. That was beautiful. Thank you for doing that. Yeah. Love that. All right. We're going to change gears. (laughs) Will, you're taking us over to Genesis, I believe. What's up? Yeah, we're going downstream of the effects of TFL and everything that happened with Terra. We're going to talk about Genesis, which has shuffled its deck once again. Genesis Trading has lost its newly appointed chief risk officer, Michael Patchen, after just three months on the job, according to a person close to Patchen. Patchen was brought into Genesis at the end of July when the firm's CEO, Michael Morrow, stepped down amid a wave of job cuts. There's a lot of other executives who also were shuffled around within Genesis. Genesis was notable for being a large lender in the space that was hit very, very heavily by Three Arrows Capital, uh, bailing on all its uh, assets that were due to so many different lenders out there. And then uh, that also ties back, of course, to the Terra Luna debacle, which Three Arrows Capital was heavily invested in. As a disclosure, Coindesk is owned by DCG, which also owns Genesis. Zach, I'm going to throw this one up to you, get your take on this story. Yeah, a bit of an exodus over at Genesis, right? Um, this is these are the ramifications. This is the fallout. These are the people who you know are losing jobs or are unable to retain jobs because the environment at some of these formerly foundational pillars of the crypto economy have been significantly compromised in the last six months as the the great deleveraging or whatever you want to call it has unfolded. So that this is likely maybe another part of that story. Obviously, this is roughly unconfirmed but probably on good authority, that this is happening likely stems from the current situation over at Genesis and the fact that they're having a a rough go of it. So the fact that this uh, was a quick stint for this particular individual at this role, I think probably speaks to the bigger situation at Genesis. But of course, I can't know that for sure. Going to toss this over to Jen for her thoughts. Yeah, it's so interesting. You know, Will, Zach, you said it, 3AC contagion continues. The CEO stepped down in August, right? And and we have Patchen in this role for three months. His resume, when it comes to risk, is quite lengthy. It just makes me kind of beg the question, what is going on? Like either he had some really out there takes on what was going on and tried to make change and the rest of the executives didn't agree with him, or it's just like a huge mess behind the scenes. I would love to see some reporting from what's going on behind the scenes um, at Genesis. Maybe, Sam, you can get some insiders to speak to Coindesk to, to find out what's happening. Because I think when you see people join companies, when I'm at a loss for words here, when you see people join companies when they're going through this and they leave three months after, it kind of speaks to disaster. Yeah, maybe I'll jump in really quick. I don't have any special reporting into Genesis. We've got way better reporters who figured out, you know, the original scoop that a bunch of money was lost with the implosion of 3AC. But for some reason, I I, I don't know what the connection is, but this reminds me of a story that I saw last week, or I think it might have even been this week, earlier this week, where there was this former Celsius, um, which we know was maybe a Ponzi scheme, maybe not. I don't know. It was like a vault that you put your money in and It wasn't, you know, going up because of the reasons why they said it was going up. Anyway, a Celsius executive went over to JP Morgan as their director of crypto regulatory policy. So one other side of this whole executive discussion to me is looking at these folks who were there when the implosions happened, unlike um, the individual that we're talking about when it comes to Genesis following those folks and seeing whether they fail upwards or whatever, you know, what have you, where are they going? That's also something that I think we as crypto reporters need to do a better job 
of tracking and you know synthesizing for for our readers. So why is this person going to J.P. Morgan if they were at Celsius? I, I have no idea. Anyway, um, we asked Zach, that same question. Oh yeah, okay. We did. <laughs> I we promise did, I was here for the lulls. We're just you're like you're like why is this happening? And we're just like that yeah, shit we were is like, funny. Why is this happening? Was, <laughs> I have the fresh energy. I, I I'm new to all these stories. Okay, <laughs> uh, I'm taking yeah. it down to you, Will. Will riff on this. What do you got? Yeah, no, I'm just interested what the long-term implications are. So one job loss strategy for sure. I'm wondering why he moved out so quickly to me. That just speaks to the state of the books at Genesis. You know, you bring someone in, the chief risk officer to fix the situation and maybe it's not fixable. Maybe they were doing a bad job in the midst of trying to restructure the company after losing all these funds. Maybe there's stuff we don't know about, right? It could be anything under the sun when someone chooses to leave a job so quickly. And in this sort of situation. But I think if you're looking at the larger lending market, it's still in shambles. BlockFi, we have no resolution on. Voyager Digital, we still have no resolution on. Celsius continues to be in restructuring. There is a Wall Street Journal article just coming out yesterday talking about how Celsius and Core Scientific, one of the largest Bitcoin miners out there, are in uh, Chapter 11 court right now. And those are just three off the top of my head, but you could keep going down. There's even more. And when's the last time we talked about the Roger Ver and that really small Bitcoin lender out there that had that dispute back in like May or June? We don't know about these things. And these lending markets, they're going to take a very, very long time to unravel, very long time to make people whole, if at all. And I think this is probably the deepest and worst part of the bear market. This is really what wrecked retail, you know, 20% interest rates lured all these folk in. They put Bitcoin up. They tried to get this interest back because they didn't know how to token farm. They didn't want to be involved with anything that was too technical. And they got wrecked. They all got wrecked. And if anything is going to set the industry back from getting back into a bull market in the next few years, it's going to be this lending market. I think this story just speaks to how deeply and messed up all these lending firms are. You, know, you walk in, three months later, you have to leave because seemingly not repairable. That's a pretty tough situation to be in. Zach, I'll kick it up to you for next. Let's do this thing. We'll take a break. Uh, after the break, we're going to go from meme coins to CFTC action. We're going to cover all sorts of ground. Memes, regulation, enforcement, burritos. I don't know. It's the hash. You never know what you're going to get. Stick with us. We'll be right back after this. Zengo Crypto Wallet is an on-chain crypto wallet with no private key vulnerability, leveraging advanced cryptography called MPC, which until now has only been available to multi-billion dollar institutions. Zengo is the most secure Web3 wallet and the best place to keep your digital currency, NFTs, and assets secure. It's also fully recoverable using the wallet's biometric recovery kit. Get started at zengo.com slash hash and use code hash to get $20 back on your first purchase of $200 or more. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Coindesk's Women Who Web 3 podcast, your weekly podcast celebrating women supporting women, investing in women, and bridging the gender gap in wealth through Web 3. Each week, we'll be learning from powerful women sharing their insights on topics like creating belonging and inclusivity in the digital spaces, the metaverse, building prosperous Web3 projects, investing in cryptocurrencies and building wealth. And we have how-tos from founders and builders who have been there and done that, 
healing sessions to give you the power to overcome imposter syndrome and everything you need to level up in your crypto journey. At the end of each podcast, stick around for some Zen with a relaxing meditation to center you after absorbing all the stories and the knowledge. I'm your host, Cams, and I'm on a mission to empower women across the globe to unlock the unlimited potential and earning power inside themselves through Web3. Whether you're just crypto curious or a crypto connoisseur, this podcast is for you. Let's get it. Hello, it's The Hash and we're back and we are talking about meme coins on a Friday. It's been so long since we've spoken about meme coins on this show and I'm so happy to bring them back because they are just fun. So there's a new class of meme tokens and they were created over the past week. They have turned multiples of early investors. Guys, it's Friday. I can't speak. I just can't talk. <laughs> Let me try that again. Please cut me a break, everyone. We're getting through this show. Okay. So, you got this, Jen. <laughs> I got it. So the market cap has reached over $50 million in some cases. But here's the kicker. The memes aren't about food or dogs. Instead, they are focused on articles from the English language. So the most traded token on Uniswap is the, the token. So the T-H-E token. The was created after Vitalik Buterin joked someone should make a project called the, the protocol. This brings me back to how easy it is to spin up one of these tokens, how easy it is to create a community around what someone says on Twitter and how easy it is for some people who are really embedded in these communities to get rich from these crazy tokens. Sam, I'm going to toss it to you because you have a ton of fresh perspectives, perspectives you've been sharing with us today. What do you think? I mean, there's there's not much fresh to say about meme coins. One, one of the things that I just like to, I don't know, the, that I think about when it comes to meme coins, like obviously it's a quote unquote bear market. All these token prices are down. Meme coins don't care because they're worth 0. 0.0000 whatever anyway, and they go up and down. And I don't know, it's still a game. And I kind of think of meme coins as this sort of sideshow, like sports betting almost, where there is actually something there. It's a little bit more than just gambling, where, well, I mean, depends on the type of gambling. But I think that there is this odd strategy involved where you have these people who have some, you know, I don't know. They they have some foresight into not the market as much as the meme. I, I I just don't know what this is. There's this weird knowledge within crypto that is getting capitalized on that I don't know if we've seen it capitalized on before in any direct way. And I just think it is fun to watch. Of course, it's risky. It's weird. I think at this point, the Daily from the New York Times has covered Doge and stuff. So people should hopefully know the risks of all this stuff. But anyway, fun to watch. I really don't have that much of a fresh perspective when it comes to meme coins, but. Zach, um, maybe I'll throw it to you. I'll be the wet blanket here. Don't get wrecked by these silly meme coins, okay? Your, your friends are not exit liquidity. There's a great meme of this, That's right? That's where your you're friends, wrong. Your followers are not <laughs> exit liquidity. So where there may be a community of people spun up around these coins in this instant moment of attention, there's other people who are looking to use that attention to cash out. So don't don't necessarily be fooled. Know what you're getting in for at the very least, right? Do what you will with your money, but know what you're getting in for at the very least, because some of these look like pump and dumps that may or may not happen. Who knows? These could be the next batch of Dogecoins. 
But then again, <laughs> there are many other coins that have popped up momentarily overnight that are sort of littering the roadway toward Doge greatness or whatever that metaphor might need to be. So I'm going to toss it over to Will for his thoughts on this one. Yeah, slight disagreement. I, I, I do think that you're directionally correct here. You should not use your friends as exit liquidity. Suzu, still watching you. We know you did that. Not great. <laughs> but that being said, this is like a part of crypto culture, right? Like everyone gets drawn into this at some point. It's often the way that you get brought into the community, right? You like find some no-name token. You think it's going to be like the end-all be-all. You put a few bucks into it rather. And then all of a sudden, like you get rug pulled and you have no more money. But you learned how to use applications along the way. You learned how to use the token. You learned how to use a wallet. You learned all these things through using a token on Ethereum or whatever blockchain you're using. And then that brings you deeper into the community. So I do think there is like some element about this that can can redeem it, right? There's not all bad stuff. So whenever I see like Bitcoin maximalists or the like just hating on all these tokens, I think, well, that's often how you were brought into the community in the first place is getting wrecked. I mean, that's how most people get into any sort of finance, right? They learn a little bit at first. You have to lose money before you make money. That being said, you're right. This pretty awful Twitter bot stuff should also be taken care of, hopefully, pretty soon here. Sam, we'll throw it back up to you. Briefly, I would like to revise my sports betting analogy. I'm thinking of Peaky Blinders, where they rigged all the horse races. This is more like that. People still had fun. Some people made money, but there were people rigging it the whole time. I should mention that. I agree with both of you in different respects. This is crazy. I'm not going to do it. It is objectively fun to watch. Um, and I hope people don't get fleeced too much um, in the end. But yeah, my new analogy. Will? So, so last far, it's kind of like a crypto casino and a crypto university. <laughs> Will, tell us your last thought. <laughs> Oh, you're right. The the casino thing is great. Metaverse. I mean, we talk about that all the time. The only room in the metaverse people are using is the casino. I think it's the same thing with Twitter. The only thing people want right now in a bear market is still the casino, even if the tokens are not that great, even if you spun them up five seconds before. I mean, just like in my own crypto journey, I remember Tendi's token back in 2020, we had like the food tokens. And there were so many different food tokens and you'd pick your best one or your favorite one. You'd purchase a little bit of it. You knew it was going to zero, but you learned a lot along the way. You made some friends in the community and you kept going. I lost all $50 on my attendees tokens, but it was worth it. And sometimes I look back at it and just have a laugh. So as long as people are not getting too wrecked on these tokens, then not a big deal. And if you do get too wrecked on these tokens, hate to say it might just be your fault. But that's my last thoughts on the subject. The real gains were the friends we added along the way. Thanks, Will. Mm -hmm. That was nice. <laughs> all right, let's change gears. Let's go to CFTC. Yes, that's right. The Commodity and Futures Trading Commission, over a fifth of all their cases in 2022 among weird soybean futures and gold falsification things, over a fifth of the things within their remit that they cracked down on were crypto related. It's a pretty big number relative to the many things that are in their orbit. So we'll talk about that. CFTC definitely stepping up its role in crypto enforcement, sort of, kind of, maybe seen as the more nice regulator compared to the SEC, but clearly they've taken some pretty dramatic steps most recently against UkiDAO, which puts the idea of DAOs in the US a bit in jeopardy going forward. So I'm going to toss it straight to Jen for her thoughts on the CFTC thing. What do you what are you thinking here? Yeah, you know, every time we, we read about the CFTC, the piece about the CFTC's budget comes up and how previously they've had a really small budget. In this article, it talks about how they've been able to do a really lot and collect a lot of fines 
compared to their operating budget, which I think was mentioned at $240 million. I think the crypto industry is the CFTC's time to shine, their time to be in the spotlight if they can get it right. I think that's how they're looking at it. And the fact that Benham keeps bringing up that budget, I think they're seeing this as an opportunity for the CFTC to finally get the budget that they've probably been asking for year after year, if they can really figure out this crypto thing. So I think that they're looking at it at a little bit opportunistically for their department, but they're, if they are able to figure it out and if they are able to create clear regulation, then sure, I think they deserve that budget that they've been asking for. Will, what do you think? Yeah, 20% seems a little low. I'm wondering what else they're going after. Is there that much other stuff going on the CFTC needs to track down? It's like, think about it. I mean, the last story we're talking about, the token, like there's so many things like that. You could just like pick up, slap some fines on somebody and keep moving. There's so many different tokens out there that the CFTC or SEC can go after. I'm surprised that it's not actually a higher percentage at this point. That might tell to you a little bit about like how difficult it is to track down some of these operators out there and if they're US based or not. Besides that, I don't have much on the story. Like CFTC and SEC continue to duke it out for who gets control over the Bitcoin markets, Ethereum markets, and crypto in general. And this seems to be just like another little you know, mark in the story that we can keep watching. There's no firm information yet on who's going to get to regulate either of those industries. Zach, back to you. Will with the Giga Brain take, like, well, what are the other 80%? And the other 80% yeah. are glorious. Are it, is, it is like, CFTC? it's like big fines for soybean <laughs> futures and like the largest <laughs> benchmark manipulation, manipulation case in the US gas and oil market. So it is crazy how many things the CFTC deals with. And it does kind of like make you wonder if they have enough crypto specialists out there who are also like in the weeds of like soybean futures manipulation. I just always find that super funny. And if there was like a corn desk, like corn desk would put so much damn shine on the CFTC and its regulatory efforts because they do so much. They just do so much. Anyway, Sam, I'm tossing it over to you. Yeah, a couple thoughts here. One, I just want to have a good time and bring this back to Do Kwan really quick. I just think, I, I, you know, that he, he, he's Korean. That was a, you know, Full Korean circle. company in a lot of ways, even though he moved to Singapore, blah, 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 all those caveats out of the way. I just think it's crazy that a person feels comfortable. He has been served by the SEC at least um, for things related to Terra in the past. I just think it's crazy that founders are comfortable enough going on interviews and saying, hey, I lied to people or deceived them in some way. He wouldn't say he lied, but he, he says he played a role in deceiving people. I, I, I think the fact that somebody who is on the run feels that comfortable saying that to a journalist shows how still unclear the regulatory environment is. But then I just want to like move it to something that's more directly related to this whole CFTC thing. I, I wish we had Diane and, and Nick, two of our um, fantastic regulatory reporters here with us today to tell me, maybe some of you can help illuminate this for me. How am I to look into the, the CFTC's decisions? For example, the whole Uki or Oki case that we had a week or two or three weeks ago. Will part of that 20% be the CFTC trying to push back against this reputation as the friendlier crypto regulatory body? Or do you think that we should expect these 20% of cases to be them actually setting precedent that is unrelated from them, you know, trying to varnish their reputation in one direction or another? I, I, I don't know if that question makes sense, but that's, that's another lens, I guess, with which we can look at that 20% number. How are they using these cases? 
I'll take it. Let's go. So broadly speaking, it's probably like sort of this uh, regulation by enforcement approach. And I think if you were to ask them, they say, hey, we're weeding out bad guys from the U.S.'s financial markets, right? You shouldn't be able to game the system in such a way. Whether the SEC or the CFTC is undertaking these actions, it still is ultimately about consumer protection and making fair and equitable markets, right? There are questions that are touching crypto that don't complicate that approach, right? Some stuff, they re- it really is an outright scam, right? You took someone's money, you failed to provide what you said you're providing. Some of that stuff is that. Other stuff speaks to the tension between crypto frameworks and current regulatory frameworks in the real world, right? So I think it's going to be a grab bag. And I think, you know, the DAO stuff is the latter, right? It's like, okay, it's a framework question. It's a square peg and a round hole. Is there any way to make these two things talk to each other in a way that makes sense for good actors who are looking to build with these new technologies? And then the other stuff is probably some bad actors out there who are doing stuff that really is unambiguously not good, right? And I think it's probably got to be a a mix of both. But I'm going to give Jen the last word on this one. Jen, what do you got? I mean, I think you said it. All I was going to say was, I think the CFTC is the nicer bad guy right now. And this whole idea of the CFTC being friendly towards crypto, if they were to become the cop on the beat to regulate the crypto industry, the industry is going to have the same problems that they have, that they are expressing about the SEC is what I think at the end of the day, these are regulators. They're looking at investor protection. I don't don't think that we have the proper flexibility and frameworks to actually give the industry the freedom that they are calling for. And so I think they're the, the nicer bad guy. But at the end of the day, there's still the cop that's going to come down on the industry. All right. We can live with that. We can live with that on a Friday. See what happens next time around. See who comes around, knocks down doors. Bust some heads. Who knows? All right, that's it for the show today. Thanks for being here, Sam Kessler. Very special guest, CoinDesk reporter, Sam Thanks Kessler. That's him. Good stuff. Jen, Will, great to be here as always. I'm Zach. That's it. Happy Friday. Have a great weekend. Get caught up on all the great stuff on the CoinDesk Podcast Network if you need something to listen to while doing the chores. All right, that's it. Have a great day. We'll talk to you later. Bye. See ya. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. So if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. You can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade or at least grab an extra latte after getting a Chime checking account with features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe, no minimum balance requirements, and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at Chime.com goals 24. That's Chime.com goals 24. Chime feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply.